All right, everybody, welcome back to the Identical Draw podcast. Today we have a special guest. Um, we it's been a, it's been a hot minute since we've had a guest on the podcast. Thompson and I have had a uh, done a bad job, poor job of having other folks on. Um, you're probably sick of. Uh, here in both of us. But um, before we get into that, um, I want to thank our partner at Vortex Optics for sponsoring this podcast. Um, Thompson and I have been doing a lot of walking for shed antlers. And um, man, this last week, there were, there were a couple spots um, that I was really thankful to have the Vortex Optics binos on my chest because I just can't shed home without them anymore. It just annoys me. I'd have to go walk walk across field or check something out. So, um, that's my uh, hot tip for shed hunting. Have your binos on you. Um, thanks Vortex for supporting yep. us, especially on a, on a sunny day. Yeah. Um, you can really, a lot of things are glimmering at you. You're not sure if it's uh, alien or not. Yeah. So, all right, let's get to it. Okay, so today we've got a good one for you. We've got we're gonna cover a bunch of different topics, um, management stuff, hunting stuff, um, and our special guest today, Matt from Land and Legacy. Um, thanks for being on, Matt. We seriously appreciate you uh, joining us here. We are we are land management wannabes, and like in the last three years, I'd say we have we've gotten to the point of actually, hey, we are we are land managers. I mean, we spend many more days managing for our property in Kansas Mm -hmm. than we do hunting it. Um, and it's been like a huge driving force for us. And, but again, we don't have any like schooling knowledge or background education. Um, so it's going to be good to talk to you to kind of (laughs) confirm or deny things that we are doing. Um, but first topic we wanted to get into was like Thompson and I were bickering at each other before this podcast about sheds. Um, we have not found as many, um, by this time of the year, as we normally do. Um, and we've got three acres of food on our 80 and it's been so warm. Like yesterday, I mean, it hit 80 degrees mm-hmm. and, yeah. uh, we were wondering and wanted to get your, your take on, do you think, um, like, do you think that's having an effect on where deer are dropping? Do you think they're hanging out this time of the year in different places than they normally would be when, Hey, last year in late February, it was. Yeah, like negative. Frigid. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think that's having a, an impact on where deer are dropping and maybe they're not, I mean, being forced to that food source as much as they normally would be? Well, first off, guys, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and uh, talk about management and then just share that in conversation. Um, hopefully people find it valuable and we'll be able to learn something, take, have some good takeaways that they can apply on their own their own place. So thanks for the opportunity. Awesome. But mm-hmm. yeah, to get into that you know, conversation about the sheds, man, there's so many different variables that will play into where does a deer actually drop their shed in relation to food, relation to cover. And then that changes absolutely every single year for, you know, year to year based on those weather uh, impacts, you know, uh, like we talked about, it's been warm, but really the week prior to it was rainy, sleety, um, maybe some snow out there in your guys' area. So like, it just changes so frequently and uh, you know on a greater scale of things too we have to consider you know those deer you guys are are working the 80 acres you have three acres of food but but the surrounding areas too the surrounding thousand twelve hundred acres 
um, is really going to impact them just as much as your 80 might. Mm -hmm. Um, so we have to take a look at like, okay, what's happening out there? Was there any standing grain left? Was, is there any wheat fields, um, that have been planted in closer proximity? I I can't answer that necessarily, but Mm -hmm. when sometimes we can get a really narrow focus of, okay, here's, here's the property that I can control. That's good. But, um, that, that's good when it comes to management. When we're talking about larger scale stuff, we're talking about weather impacts and, and timing of shed dropping and everything. We have to kind of zoom out a little bit more and really look at the larger landscape feel. So um, this year, yeah, you may not find as many sheds, even though your work has probably increased in the last year of what you guys have been doing. That doesn't mean that's not working necessarily. It just means that there's a lot of other things in play um, so, so for instance, like I took a quick walk shooting some videos the other day, um, on Adam's family's place and, uh, found like 10 sheds in a matter of you know, 15, 20 minutes in the big bottom field. They were just laying out there. Mm-hmm. Right? When the year passed, we had probably found four to maybe six through the entire, entire season. Yep. And so we found that many in, in, <laughs> in such a short amount of time. Right. It just changed so much. Um, and we have to look back really of, you know, starting December after most of the route activity, what was the weather pattern? What was the, um, the stressors of the winter? Has any food sources during this time frame changed, uh, changed the amount of woody browse available in that big block? Or again, that winter wheat, that's pretty uh, common out there in Kansas. So mm-hmm. those are things that I would be considering maybe, maybe expanding my search out a little bit to know neighborhood wise. What else, what else changed a little bit in relation to, again, the stressors of winter? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, we know, like we have great, we're lucky to have uh, pretty good neighbors and mm-hmm. know a lot of what their land looks like. Um, we've been on some of the surrounding pieces, um, actually all of the surrounding pieces. We've been fortunate to be able to at least walk around and look around. Um, but like no property has, Stay, like like the farmers in Kansas, they're knocking everything down and cleaning it all up. Um, we have yeah. still have standing corn. We still have standing beans. Um, I, I find it hard to believe that anybody, any of our neighbors have like green kill plots or anything like that. We've yep. got, I don't know, two or three of those. Um, so I, like, I want to think that our property um, would keep some more sheds down. But I, uh, just before the podcast, Nate and I were talking and um, the first year we had the 80. Um, it, I mean, it had just been a cattle property and, we want, like, we found more older antler, older deer sheds, um, that, uh, winter than we have since really. I mean, we always find like, um, at least one or two good sets, but, uh, we wonder if the, they just had almost, even though our property is getting better, perhaps they had a little bit more of a sanctuary because we're, we've been doing more work. We've been back there more than uh, I'm sure farmers were never back in some of these sanctuary spots. So I always wonder if, if we're going to see maybe a slight decline, and then um, after a couple more years of work in the property, then we start to see a better increase when they start to figure out, Hey, like, wow, this property is actually good. There is food here. Um, season. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting because some days when we're working, I feel like, man, we're just pushing deer off and other days, like, I mean, we had, we did a, what, a full day of work, um, in late January. And then that night on our cell camera, we got the biggest buck we have right there walking through our plot. We were just working on. So it's like, it's hit or miss if we're knocking deer off. I mean, 
I don't know. We we love picking up antlers a ton, but at the end of the day, we're more focused on doing long-term management tasks than hopefully not pushing off deer to get their shed antlers. But Yeah, what do you think about that, Matt? Like, do you guys, um, I know you guys, you guys do this full-time, correct? Yes, sir. Yeah, yep. so do you guys ever think that um, your land management during this time is pushing some deer off or, or not? Um, honestly, it depends on the practice itself and it depends on how often you're, you're in the site. Um, yeah. So, so like right now, one of the big things that we we're either doing is, is prescribed fire or we're doing TSI work. And so we're putting a lot of treetops on the ground and that's feeding deer. That's adding to the cover when there's cover that's generally just completely limited during this time of the year on most properties. So um, sure, there's some disturbance, but nighttime activity in those areas is going to be really high um, because there's food there. And so if you go into, let's say, a five-acre unit, you do your TSI and you get out and you don't disturb it um, for weeks on end, you're absolutely going to have deer in there. But if you're in there every single week, maybe checking cameras or, or, or working on a neighboring unit, you're not going to have that, that same exact impact immediate impact and result from deer using it just because it's not as secure as if you weren't in there um so you know another thing that that really um this time of the year because i don't know it's probably march 3rd or something like that when we're recording this but i was just in kansas uh two three days ago on a, on a large track and um majority of the bucks they're still holding right now too and so that's another thing that i don't know what your trail cameras are necessarily telling you are all of them shed? Are they still holding? Because you just might not have as many on the ground laying to find. Um, and, and if that's the case, then that's a good thing. That's a good thing at this time. We're, we're seeing that the individual's health um, that has increased and maybe gone through the winter time frame at a more improved condition than years past that you've seen um, where they may have dropped earlier. So um, that could also be a, a, you know something that's definitely impacting it. Um, but you know, you talk about disturbance and, and shed hunting. Number one, we know if, if we're waiting later into March to go out and find them, um, that's closer to spring green up. And if we're out there pursuing shed antlers a lot and, or just in working a property, a ton land management wise, and we're seeing where we're pushing deer. Um, one thing that I always try and keep in the back of my mind, um, to some degree is, this is a known stress period for deer, right? And if we're out there walking and walking miles and miles and miles to find shed antlers at the time frame where food is limited, cover is limited, they're just trying to get through the winter time frame from a food standpoint, from a health standpoint. And that's probably not the best time to be pushing deer around and making them expend additional energy. So, um, you know, I, I, early bird, sure, can get the worm when it comes to shed antlers. But if you want to find a lot in a little bit of time, wait till the end of March um, in your and or your respective region when spring green up hits and go get it. Go get after it then because all of them are going to be dropped by then. Yeah. And now there's spring green up. There's new food resources available and, and we're not putting deer into a, uh, a more stressful, let's say, situation environment. And I know that's kind of granular. That's, that's pretty fine detailed. But, you know, if you and there's, there's a lot of people who are out there you know, every four days hiking miles to go find them. And, and yeah. I'm good to be passionate about it, but at the same time, just, you know, just in the back of our heads, be, be mindful of 
this time of the year is, is not necessarily for many properties and many deer herds a, a great time frame. So the less intrusion, the less disturbance that we do pushing deer around, probably the best, unless you're going in and creating more food like doing TSI or you're preparing fire lines for more food, more improvement down the road. That's, you know, say uh, justifiable, if you will. Yeah, that, that's a good point because I think in the last few years, um, like Western states, yeah. shed hunting has been, it's, that's been a big movement of like, Hey, you're, you're pushing deer or you're pushing elk and mule deer out of their, their ranges and just moving them all over and it's hurting them. Uh, but I don't think that's talked enough about for white tails. Yeah. Because I mean, still even in the Midwest and I mean, big ag areas, I mean, getting through the winter for any white tail is still a struggle. So, I mean, that is a great point of like, Hey, let's maybe back it off a little bit and, and let that yeah, and food we, source come up before. Yeah. And we, um, we even talked about that. Like we like pledged to that. We were going to stay off mm-hmm. our 80, um, all of February, which mm-hmm. would be way different than what we've done in the past. And we've, for the most part, we've really stuck to that. We've, mm-hmm. um, we did like maybe one, a uh, little in the timber burn, like February 8th or something like that. But for the most part, we've really been off it. And we wanted to see kind of the, the effect that had, um, compared to years past when we were there at least every week. Um, and we still would scoop up 10 to 12 antlers, um, in the winter. But yeah, I think you bring up a good point, Matt, like maybe they just aren't dropped. Like we only, we're only running a couple cameras right now. Um, and honestly the movement's been pretty dead for, I mean, we still have standing corn, still have standing beans, but they just really, we have, we have, um, one feeder out, I think. Um, and they're just really not, we're not getting a lot of pictures. So, um, yeah, I mean, we could, it's kind of hard to tell the inventory of what percentage are still holding or whatnot, but yeah, that's, that's a good point. Maybe they just, maybe they're just still holding. And I think Kansas is at least our, uh, section of the woods is always seems to always drop later. Like people are scooping sheds in Iowa, like early February, uh, like a bunch of them. And I don't know it, uh, in Missouri, our, our best walks have been March 11th, like 16th. Yeah. That's when usually they start to hit. Yeah. The ground, but. That's just where your highest probability is going to be. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. every deer, every buck that's out there has two antlers that's going to drop. Not always going to be right there side by side. So if even just a portion of them is still holding, whether it's one antler or two antlers, that's, that's a, a higher percentage that you're not going to find until they drop. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it just goes down to math and probability. Yep. Um, the longer you wait, the more that are going to be on the ground to find. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, man, sometimes it, it, you know, there, there's, there's some good things to learn from finding antlers and, and their relation to, you know, um, bedding areas, maybe where you had some encounters and such of those deer. But, um, most times they're going to be there two weeks later. So, so just wait a little bit is oftentimes the, the best bet. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, I do, I, I'm definitely conscious or at least trying to be aware of that added pressure. Um, cause at the end of the day, everyone wants bigger deer, healthier deer, and we know stress period going into spring, like getting their body condition through that time frame is going to help improve antler quality in the next year. So I don't want to do activities kind of ca- counteract that right. when I know, again, if I wait just a little bit, um, I'll still find what I'm looking for. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Sweet. Well, that was a, a good wrap up on some shed thoughts. Yeah. Um, I know 
at least for for me they're constantly going through through my brain but um basically i'm going to back up back up a little bit and just kind of dive into your history with uh wildlife management um give us a brief like uh, background of like what got you into the interest in like wildlife management um and then tell us about how how long has land legacy been around and how'd you guys uh, get that started up absolutely man well I first got started in, let's say, wildlife land management at a really young age. My, my family, um, I grew up on the East Coast, but family was involved in you know, farming, both cattle and ag, and big-time hunters. I was very passionate um, people when it came to just being outside. Mm-hmm. And so growing up, I knew that um, I wanted to work outside. I wanted to work the land, but I loved hunting. And then I just kind of stumbled upon the opportunity that there's wildlife management as a career. I said, well, gosh, that is for me. That is what I want to do. And so once I, I knew that, you know, 13, 14 years old or so, and then just kind of did everything I could internships, college, um, and, and job opportunities to be able to prepare myself for a career in that. And then, um, the land and legacy, we have been working across the country for we're, we're five years in going on, going on six, about five and a half years right now of, of Adam and I um, joining forces at Land and Legacy and kicking it off, man. Wow, that's awesome. That yeah, that's sweet. Cool. That that's a that's a good gig. That's a good way to go about it. Um, you love you love hunting and you love wildlife, and you might as well like do a little bit of both and help help both of them become better, um, across the country. That's, that's the way to go. So, um, I guess kind of getting into some deer management stuff. First, first question is I, Thomas and I have noticed, um, an, in, an increase in, um, like management. Yeah. Like private land yeah. management. We, with I would deer. say we started, we've really been land managing for three and a half years mm-hmm. about, um, how do you feel about, um, like, kind of the the storm it's taken um i don't know like with almost like social media influencers and quotes like so many people um starting to pay attention to land managing um for whitetail and other wildlife um does that does i mean it's a good thing that we're managing uh the woods better than they have in years past um like does it ever make you nervous seeing a bunch of dudes like uh, cutting trees without chaps kind of thing, or like, how, like, what do you think about this storm of land management, uh, on social media? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good question. It's, kind of, it's a weighted question, right? Yeah. Um, there's certainly a lot of pros and, and I, and I want to speak on those first because, um, largely I am extremely encouraged by it. Um, yeah, just in the, in the last six years, um, of us, producing content. We are seeing more and more people enjoying that content. Um, you know, whether it's subscribing, whether it's downloads on our podcast or, or just engagement and videos, people are really searching this out. And, and I think that, um, bar none, it's a very positive thing to get more people on the land, working close with the land. what we're called to do, uh, kind of spiritually, but, but there's so many lessons to be learned out there. Um, and, and, and I'm extremely encouraged by that. Yep. Of course, there are some, if you will, you know, downsides or dangers of it, but um, that can be either 
core practices being implemented or unsafe techniques that get implemented. But, but really that's going to happen in, in any situation. And that was happening before people were even getting it was like, more interested in land management. That's always just a fraction of a population. Um, that's just, I guess, human nature. Right. But, um, you know, we could say the same thing for, for hunting techniques. Someone that's going to look down, oh, that's unsafe or that's not good for the sport or this and that. Um, those opinions have been out there for, for probably centuries, yeah. but same thing with management, but greatly, greatly encouraged, um, by the number of people who are either, you know, purchasing land to do this, um, or, or they have had land and now they're saying, wow, I get to enjoy my property for more months out of the year beyond just hunting. I can help manipulate this landscape and the resources that are available to deer, to turkey, to quail, to waterfowl, whatever the case may be. And, and I can have a positive impact on that. Um, that really, if you will, kind of ties the, the, the bow tie, the knot around hunters being conservationists. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that really makes that statement much more true in my opinion. So as more people get into land management, I, I hope they dive in deep to um, quality resources to gain information. So their, their course being conservationists and the definition of that is the wise use of natural resources. I hope that they do that. Um, and the large majority is. So again, I, I just, to wrap it up, I, I feel very confident and encouraged by this, uh, influx of people trying to learn what to do on their own property. Yep, definitely. I remember just, um, our first year with our 80 when the family bought it, we had, um, two guys from QDMA then, um, Matt Ross and another guy. And I remember Matt yeah. at one of the sections, like I saw you guys cutting and you guys need to be wearing this, 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 and you yeah. need to be doing this. I'm like, Hey, thank you for telling us. Cause like, um, when yeah, you're we, getting into it, even, a lot of guys yeah, just we, don't know. Yeah, we didn't. So know. it's like, Hey, the biggest advice, if you're wanting to do this is just, Hey, search out those, that, that, it, the knowledge before you get into it. Um, I think that's oh, sure. the best tip for sure. Um, so no, that, that, that's the thing. like there's, there's, um, always safety recommendations out there. And we're, I was just shooting some videos for, for Whitetail properties the other day. And we were just trying to make sure we were addressing the audience appropriately on some of these different topics we were doing. And it's like, you know, we almost have to, as, as many people as getting into this practice of, let's say just call it prescribed fire or run a, a chainsaw this video might be the first video that they watch and they've never picked up a saw or never picked mm-hmm. up a drip torch. But we have to make sure that we cover the basis of safety first and then dive into the actual technique. Um, because there's, there are a lot of people who are just getting into it and they just may not know and that's okay. Um, but we got to make sure that that information is readily available for them to learn on the front end of things before they, they really, let's say, dive off the deep end into land management, dropping trees or putting flame on the ground. Definitely. All right, so I'm going to get into a few specific things. Um, I want to know your opinion on three great things that um, a landowner can do to, like, I mean, diversify or just, like, create better habitat um, on their property or just, like, three great management things that a landowner can do. And that's a super broad question. Just like, let's like, just say a landowner yeah. with a little timber, a little grass, um, 
just like a, yeah. a, a normal, like we can say like a Midwest property. Um, and then maybe three not so great things that are maybe talked about that people think are great for land managing, but they actually aren't, or maybe don't have like maybe quite the effect that people yes. think. So what, what would you say on three great things and maybe three not so great things? Um, we, we have to do timber management and that's, it gave me a broad question. I'm going to give you a broad answer on yeah. that. So timber management, right. But there are so many different elements to that. Um, but we need to manage the timber first and foremost, because most of it is either overstocked, unhealthy, um, the age class distribution is, is really out of whack. So what we want to go in and do is diversify the ages and the structure of that timber stand. So that may mean in some areas you designate, hey, this is a really good bedding location. It's on a high point, the topography, the thermals, uh, it's, it's location in relation to food, um, known food plots or, or grain fields, something like that. Like go in there, designate that area and say, I want deer to bed here. So that means we're opening up the canopy a lot 80 to hundred percent and putting that, those treetops and structure on the ground. There's a lot of different techniques you can use to, to achieve that. Um, there, there's a, I guess I'll get into, into the negative side of things, but you can flush cut, you can hinge cut and you can girdle trees and hack and squirt. We'll probably use a combination of all that to achieve that really dense type of cover, uh, where we get lots of sunlight transmission to the ground. Mm-hmm. And that's going to encourage a new understory, uh, of young reforest regeneration. That's what we call essentially a bedding thicket. You have to have cover on your place. So let's just, let's just include that in timber management. Um, as, as you want to be able to do that. And then out from there, let, let's not go in as hard and, and reduce the canopy load as much. Identify some crop trees. Maybe you got a great mixture of, of red oak, some white oak, maybe chinkapins or, or, or um, uh, some chestnut oak on your property. Whatever the case may be, go in and identify those producers, those mass producers, and free them up. So you're, so you're still dropping trees, but not to the degree and intensity um, that you did in, let's say, that bedding thicket. And now we've got a transition zone in your timber that is then going to increase forage from mass producers, but then your understory regeneration as well. Yep. Um, so you've got to work the timber. Number number two, I would say, is it's edge feathering. So really going to maybe one of your grassy openings and how it blends into the timber, um, you've you got to thin that out. We want this almost staircase type effect going from tall trees, maybe to medium uh, mid-story trees down to shrubs, down to brambles and grasses and forbs. Just this blending of transitional period from that mature timber to the grassy opening 20, 30 yards wide. That's that beautiful um, edge that, that we all want to try and achieve. You can do that with a chainsaw um, pretty easily and just let it develop and grow back. Lastly, one that it just works so well in tandem with edge feathering or running chainsaw, open up the timber, um, is the use of prescribed fire. It is a tool that um, it's kind of second to none when it comes to land managers, and um, it takes skill and it takes knowledge to apply that. But that's no different from running a chainsaw, honestly. And uh, so there's a lot of skepticism around it uh, and maybe fear, but as a land manager, it's responsibility to manage the land. If you're opening up the canopy, 
we've got to maintain the understory and prescribed fire is the best tool to be able to do that. So in tandem with cutting and opening the forest, follow up with prescribed fire. And there's, I guess, three good techniques there. Timber management to varying degrees, edge feathering and prescribed fire. Man, if you're a private landowner listening, you should just be taking these notes because that, I mean, that's, that's awesome advice. I mean, we, we started feathering our uh, food plot edges and we definitely saw some, some great things come from it um, this last year. And we're, we, we realized we could do quite a bit more. Like you mentioned, Matt, like the staircase effect, like we, we, uh, need to even cut down that edge even more and make it even more open. And we, instead of planting all the way up to the hard timber edge, like so many people think you should do, like you see on TV, it's like leaving that 20 to 30 yards. Like you mentioned is, is game changer. We have there, there's a neighboring property to the 80 that they, they have done this. I don't know if I don't know if it was just. I don't how, know if it's by accident. I don't or know, not. but they have this incredible strip of. I don't Warm know if it's blue grass, stem yeah. or yeah. something, but it like it just like makes this perfect like edge that it goes from like right. a, a timber down to the this tall grass and then right out to the food and man the deer just use that as a highway. They just love that structure and that that cover that they don't have to be exposed in oh. the food, but they can be right there. I'm like that is what we need to try to apply more. And I mean, as, I mean, as far as management, that's great cover, but also like hunting that is, I mean, that's incredible stuff too. Um, during that time of the year. So what would you say on the, uh, the flip side of that coin with the, the three, maybe not as great things for managing? Sure. Sure. Um, loaded, loaded question. I'm going to try to do my best to explain maybe why, um, we wouldn't do these a month. As, as much, and maybe it's an overuse of these techniques mm-hmm. opposed to just using them appropriately and at the right times, I should mm-hmm. say. Um, so, so first one that we see a lot is, is I don't, I, I still don't understand why people just think that the only way to cut a tree for wildlife is to hinge it. Um, that, that's just not the case at, at, at all. And, and we see a lot of people trying to do timber management is what they will quote it. Um, and, and, and all that they do is, is hinge any species of tree that they come in contact with. Um, and that's just not healthy for the forest. It's not healthy for that individual tree. You've really just shortened the canopy. Maybe, maybe it was an average of 50, 60 foot tall trees. Now you just brought them down to a level of three, four foot tall. And that's, that, that tree's still alive. Like, and it's going to regrow and you didn't really open up the canopy much farther. You just shortened it. Mm-hmm. And then two years, three years down the road. And it's just, it's not very conducive to mobility. Um, the other game species that could benefit from um, do, using different types of cutting or felling techniques of those trees. So uh, we, we typically just see when someone says, I want to do wildlife and I want to work my timber only a hinge cut situation. So that's when I would be, I would be, um, the thing I guess would be a negative is the overuse of hinging. Yep. And, and I want to specify too, when we do edge feathering and when we do bedding thickets, we will hundred percent use hinge cuts in it, but it's at the right density and it's the right tree species to do that. Um, whether it's, you know, not as fibrous dense wood and probably not doing anything over a six inch diameter, uh, or DBH tree, something that I can push with my hand and I know what direction it's going. It's mm-hmm. selling more of a soft wood. It's going to regenerate really well. 
Um, and it's going to be put to the ground without splintering and barbaring and creating a, a, a danger for me um, or anyone else who's cutting themselves. So um, that would, I would say number one. Um, number two, I, I would probably say is the short sightedness of almost defining every area on a property that's open. Let's say it's, it's majority timber or there's some like, inside corners or points or something like that. If you're in ag country and everyone just says, it's an opening, I got to food plot it and not understand the value of native plants, um, native weeds from a structure, from a cover standpoint, from fawning cover, from transitional areas, from forage during the growing season. Um, all that's extremely valuable and applicable to deer and turkeys and quail pheasants in certain areas. So we just have to, we have to know, let's say the, the layout of the farm that we're trying to create and consider access. And a lot of times we just see opening food plot, but then no understanding of like how I'm going to hunt that or, or the fact that I have to, if I want to go hunt the back of the property, I have to go through two food plots because my road connects each opening to one another and now I've just kind of shot myself in the foot because of the short sightedness of food plot was king. And now I just need to plant every opening in, in a food plot. Um, so, I, I mean, again, overuse of, of probably food plots instead of longer planned out thought process of how does this relate to where I'm holding deer during daylight hours and how I'm actually going to hunt this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a third one, a third one that I would say is, um, is, is, is not necessarily overused, but people often think that it has more, uh, validity or more power in a dictating, um, food supply and influencing wildlife, I should say. And that is the, the planting of like soft mass trees or, um, hard mass trees. A, a lot of times it kind of like Smokey the Bear, there's a campaign for against fire, right? There's always been this campaign of, man, if you plant trees, you are a land steward. If you're planting trees, you're doing the right thing. And every region um, is different. So I, I need to specify that and every property is different because on some properties we've had to promote planting trees because of the lack of, or the fact that there's giant openings and we need to create some corridor type cover, um, or the lack of mass producing trees. So every property is different, but oftentimes we see people planting soft mass and hard mass trees and, um, kind of putting them up on a pedestal of like, Oh, I did this. But, but in reality, um, the management of them, the, the fragileness of them from a pollinating, from a fruiting, from a disease, from a pest standpoint, um, from the limited amount of food that they can produce, um, and then the number of animals, wildlife, that are going to eat them prior to you ever really being able to produce enough of them that creates a consistent pattern of deer coming to them. It's just kind of one of those things that it's a feel-good, but it just doesn't have the, the weight or the influence that you probably think it does on a landscape. And I know there's some people out there who might say, well, I planted these trees and, 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 um, you know, deer come to them or my grandpa planted it years ago. And when they're, when they're fruiting, they're, they're dropping there. And that's, that's a hundred percent true. 
But if we look at it on a calendar year time frame, man, that food source was good for like four mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. It has That's a strong point. pulling power, but but on the grand scheme of things, we're not producing food that's changing the life of that animal. All right, guys, I'm cutting in here. Uh, some unfortunate news with this podcast. Nate started getting a little violent with our guest. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, we, for whatever reason, around 36 minutes on this podcast, the audio just went to a- absolute SHIT. Um, so I'm not sure why. Um, I didn't change any settings that I can think of. Um, it was both our audio and Matt's audio just went just super squeaky and just terrible. Uh, something in our mixer uh, must have just, just, I don't know. We had them connected to our, uh, our Bluetooth on our mixer, and for whatever reason, um, it just started getting all funky around that time. So uh, I'm going to just quickly go over. Um, we, we, we kept talking. This is super unfortunate. Um, we kept talking for maybe 45 minutes on so many other good things. I'm going to do my best to round out those things that Matt um, took his time to talk uh, to us about. So we just got done talking about the three great things, three bad things. Um, so moving on from there, um, I went and we started talking about prescribed fire. Um, because Matt mentioned that's uh, one of the great things to do as a land manager. So um, obviously prescribed fire promotes a lot of change, um, whether you're doing it during during the dormant season, uh, being January, February, March, or you're uh, doing it during the late growing season, which is late August, September, um, even into October. So um, first I asked them, um, I asked them about burn permits. Uh, if you're familiar with uh burning or prescribed fire. Um, every County does it different. And that's kind of what he started to talk about is Missouri is a very pro burn state. Um, obviously we have uh, property in Kansas. We feel that it's, it's most of the Midwest is, is very pro burn. Uh, people are most likely comf- comfortable with it. Um, most counties will, um, give out burn permits based on, um, what the local national weather service is, is saying for fire danger. Um, we always call to see what they're thinking. I asked Matt and he said that they always, before every single burn, they call the local fire department and say, Hey, this is where we're at. We're going to burn. Um, we're professionals. Um, just want to let you know, if you see a, a plume of smoke, that's us. Um, and that's basically what he does at the beginning of every single burn. Um, and then gives him a call when he's all done. That's, that's some awesome advice. And we're definitely going to keep that in mind and probably do the same. Um, we're heading down tomorrow to burn some timber. Um, and then, uh, probably a couple of weeks later do our big grass, a couple acre burn. So we'll definitely give them a call. Um, so some great advice there. And then, then I got into burn lines and, um, uh, fire breaks. Um, basically this is the, the way you get your fire to stop. Um, and not go where you don't want it to. You create a burn break or a fire break, whatever you want to call it. So I asked him um, what he does for this for grass fires um, and then what he does for timber because obviously a grass fire is going to be much hotter. Um, his recommendation for a grass fire was if you have the equipment, um, till till up the till up the grass so it's just bare dirt for however six to ten feet. Um, during a hot, uh, low humidity day with good wind, I mean, that flame can roll over the top of that, um, fire break and can honestly get that, the grass on the other side of the break on fire. If, if you don't do more than six to 10 feet. So that was his number one recommendation. Um, he also mentioned planning a, like a perennial. 
something that'll be green or or dirt during this time as a, as a fire break. That's that's a really good uh, piece of advice there. And then he also mentioned wet lining, which is um, getting a brush hog or something like that, cutting down um, the the grass or the fuel source so it's very very low in a six to ten foot area, and then running running your drip and water basically at the same time and uh, basically creating like a backfire, if you will, um, and, and getting a, a small fire that's very under control and having, having that as a, as a really good fire break. So um, I, I kind of went into how we have uh, our ditches are, are basically our biggest concern because that, that connects all of our properties because um, we don't have ag that goes right up to the road in our, on our road. We have a ditch full of, of hot fire that could go all the way, essentially a couple miles down the road. So uh, we were talking about how our best, um, p- his best piece of advice for, for kind of a fire line there. Um, he also mentioned, uh, since fire, since grass doesn't need burnt every single year, um, we could just plant wheat, um, in the fall when we know we're going to burn it in the spring. That way that's, that's a natural fire line. And then the job's already done at that point since you've done it in the fall. Um, and then, uh, transitioning to in the timber, um, what he does is he said 80% of the time he's using, um, uh, basically a natural made, um, fire break that he's made, uh, he or somebody has, has gone in, um, blown an area with a leaf blower, um, four to six feet at least in the timber, um, and then removing any, any logs or anything that might, um, continue to fire on into your no, no burn area. He says he's taking those logs, um, throwing them out of the fire zone. He's not throwing them into what's being burned. He's throwing it out to what's not being burned. And he's also blowing, uh, blowing the leaves opposite direction as well and creating a very good boundary. He says 80% of the time that that's what they're doing. They're also using, um, natural landscape features like creeks, um, roads, um, rocks, dirt, just, just different things like that to break up and get fire lines done in, in the timber. Um, obviously a timber fire is much more manageable. Um, you can be pretty set with some leaf blowers and, um, some uh, water packs, even if you want. Um, and then just having a lot of hands, uh, hands on deck to help. And that was kind of a, a big thing that we talked about is, is fire, fire is nothing to mess around. Um, it'll, it'll take on you, uh, very quickly. We've seen fire really roar, especially those grass fires. Um, flames are, uh, man, 10 feet high, um, at times. And it's, it's can be pretty intimidating. You definitely need to, if, if you're a landowner uh, looking to do it for the first time, have people with experience with you. Uh, don't just think you're going to light your property on fire and it's going to go perfect because the wind direction is doing this Wind wind direction has changed almost every single burn we've done. Um, for the good or the bad. So definitely have, have everything figured out. Um, when you light that first, um, drip, uh, on your property in the back of your mind, you want to know that you have every, every fire line, fire break put in line and there's no risk at all of it. If it jumping anywhere. So definitely, um, some really good things from him. And then we quickly touched on uh, dormant versus late growing season. Uh, so like I mentioned, dormant, uh, winter time, late growing season, late fall, um, or I guess basically fall time. Um, and what, what each fire does, um, dormant season basically cleans up the litter that's on the, on the forest floor. It really doesn't promote, um, like the growth of Forbes or anything. He mentioned that a late growing season burn 
um, is going to more so kill or cut back um, your your woody um, brush and then promote more forbs when uh, dormant season burn is going to, in, in the grasses, it's going to promote more more grassy material. Um, and it's really just about um, keeping your property tidy um, during the dormant season burns. Um, he says that's probably, they do that probably 80% of the time and, and their uh, late growing season probably 20% of the time, um, just, just depending on, on the structure. Um, if you've got a lot of woody material, uh, growing up, maybe you want to do a late growing season burn to cut that back and then produce, um, to produce better, um, soft, soft branched, um, species. Uh, that, that's something that you just got to kind of figure out based on your property. Um, what, what's going to work best for you. Uh, we haven't done a late growing season burn before we, we always stick to dormant season, um, probably for a couple of reasons we're hunting during late growing season time. Um, so that's probably our number one reason why we don't do it. And, and we feel like a dormant season burn really, um, does the trick for us. So I'm trying to think, um, got my notes out in front of me. Um, I, after, so after, uh, kind of jumping back a little bit, we, uh, he talked about, uh, hinge cutting being, um, uh, maybe used too often in some instances, we asked him what, uh, might be the best timber for hinge cutting. And he mentioned six inches or less, um, like a smaller tree for, for all sorts of reasons. Um, number one being safety. Um, and he says some of the great trees to hinge are elm, maple, hackberry, um, a more softer, uh, wood that's not going to, uh, snap on you like a, um, he mentioned like a hickory or a super hardwood that doesn't have, won't really bend, um, as well as, um, like an elm or hackberry or a box elder or dogwood, um, black gum, those kind of trees. So, um, good thing there. Um, let's see, jumping in. We, then we discussed a little bit, um, about, um, specific, specific Turkey management. Um, can you just manage your, uh, um, timber and land for deer and have uh, good turkey side effects. It, it's it's a yes and no. Um, is kind of what he was getting at. A deer can go a lot longer um, with less change. He mentioned um, you could you could hold fire. You could not burn for seven eight years. The deer would deer would be fine. Um, they'd stick around. But with turkey, if you can do it every two to three, they love that. Um, he also mentioned breaking up your units, um, like breaking up an eighty acres. Uh, instead of maybe five units that we have broken up, break it into 10, just creating more diversity um, for the poults. And uh, as soon as they're born, he mentioned like having, having food and um, uh, great like nesting cover, all those sort of things um, in line and close, close together um, is ideal for turkeys um, because they, it's not like they're going to travel far away to, start eating, um, after they're born. Um, so he mentioned just, um, obviously change for like changing the landscape in any way is good for, um, animals, but doing it more often, uh, is especially great for great for turkeys. Um, he also says, um, predator control is obviously super important. Um, some people, uh, he thinks some people weigh on it a little bit too much. Um, they might think that it's the only cause is predators while they're not managing their land at all for Turkey. So, um, sometimes we've got to just like take a step back and look at what, what does our property actually need to have a better Turkey habitat? 
Um, we've seen that on our 80. We have we have some great nesting ground. We could we could have even more. Um, we usually have um, broods of turkeys hanging out um, late spring, early summer on our ground, which is always great to see. We um, have been focusing less um, specific uh, recently on the cover and the management because we do so much of that and more on the predators because we know we have a insane amount of um, predators on our ground. So we've, we've definitely taken to um, getting out some of the raccoons and stuff and animals like that. So um, let's see what else we have that Matt touched on. One of the last things we touched on is just the, um, the patience that you need as a land manager. Uh, what's your, what's your timeline? Um, we, we discussed the equipment that we have and um, how it's just a slower timeline for us. We don't have farming equipment. We don't have a bulldozer. We don't have a skid steer. And he mentioned running equipment is great. Um, but also just taking in, taking in the, the, the process that land management is. Um, it, if I could snap my fingers and have everything I wanted done on the 80 done today, I would not because I just love, love the process of it. Um, I spend more time land managing than hunting. Um, so that is definitely something that each person can decide for themselves how, how much time do they want to devote to land management. Um, we've been working hard the last three off seasons and um, in, some, in some areas we haven't even touched. We haven't even touched the, the saw or the, the brush hog in, in certain spots. And honestly, like sometimes it's, it's frustrating to look back and see after many, many long days of work that there are spots, the majority of our 80, we still haven't even been able to manage how we want um, but we love it that way. Um, that's what makes it so much fun, um, for land managing, but it was awesome to have Matt on the podcast. Super disappointed that the last, whatever, 40 minutes, um, didn't work out. Uh, I don't know why I, honestly, it makes me a little nervous that it would happen again with a different guest, but, uh, I'm going to keep, keep trying. That's the first time we've ever had any issue like that. Um, but I thank Matt for, for coming on. Um, you can find him and Adam there. Uh, uh, on Instagram and Facebook at Land and Legacy. Um, if you're interested in having them do some work for you, um, you can also um, reach out to them through there. And I think they have an email in their bio. Um, we've been following along for a lot of time. If you've learned land management stuff from us, um, you've also learned it from Land and Legacy because we we follow and and copy things from them um, and have been applying things that we've learned from them. Um, just even through their social, they also have a podcast, stuff like that. So um, definitely recommend giving them a follow. Um, but yeah, everyone, thanks for listening. We've got another great slew of guests that are going to be making the making the appearance um, here on the podcast in the next couple of weeks. So we're trying our best to, to get more um, influential people um, in the management side of things, um, hunting, uh, whatever it may be. So um, definitely stay tuned. We're trying to drop these every single Thursday. Um, and then we're dropping YouTube content every single Tuesday. So, um, subscribe if you haven't, and, um, we appreciate the support. Thanks everyone.